29, which can be found uh, on your insert, the sermon text, or in your Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to him, to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape when we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You ever wonder why we do what we do? Why we chose that profession? Why we went to that college? Why we married that person? In fact, my wife all the time asks that question. Why did I marry this person? You know, it's interesting the motivations that are behind our actions. Some of which we know and some of which we can't really even get our hands on why we do what we do. Studies have found that upon entering an office, people behave more competitively when they see a sharp leather briefcase on the desk. They talk more softly when there's a picture of a library on the wall. And they keep their desk tidier when there's a vague scent of cleaning agent in the air. In a recent July uh, edition of the journal Science, these two Netherlands professors lay out mounting evidence of the power of what they term the unconscious will. Our actions are very often initiated, though we are unaware of what we are seeking or why. For instance, they notice that people sitting in hard chairs are more likely to be rigid in negotiating sales contracts. And people tend to judge other people as more generous when they're holding a warm cup of coffee. And uh, they evaluate job candidates more seriously when they review their resumes on a heavy clipboard rather than a light one. So make sure if you have a job interview to take along a very heavy clipboard and you're sure to go ahead and get the job. You know, it's important we examine our motivations, isn't it? If this is true about life, that there are things that are underlying how we live, the decisions we make in love, the decisions we make in work, then it's certainly true in the area of faith. But the reality is we don't really often examine our motivations until things are shaken up. Right? It's kind of like life is a soda can, and it's only when you shake it up that you discover what comes pouring out. 
This whole book to, to the uh, church here, the Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, is a story of a church that's been shaken up. They've experienced persecution. They've felt the pressures of life upon them, and their supposedly flaccid Christian faith has been tested to the limits. And now they're getting an opportunity to see what is coming out, what is overflowing. And some of what they're seeing is not good. See, the truth of the matter is, when things get hard, if our motivations are wrong, ultimately we will fall away. But if through this testing time, this shaking time, what, we're, what we discover are the right motivations, what will come forth is not abandonment, but rather worship. See, worship is the natural response of a heart that's been set free by God. And so for the next four hours, what I want to do is I want to analyze a couple of points. The first is, what is the reason that God gives us for worship? What is it that's down deep inside that should be in our hearts that causes us to worship? The reason. The second thing I want to look at then is our responsibility of worship. Love demands a response. So the reason for worship, the responsibility to worship, and then finally, the totality of worship. We're going to look at what really is worship and what it calls us to do and be. So let's look at these three points. Number one, the reason for worship. In this passage here, right, a couple weeks ago when I preached on the passage before, we were getting a lot of counsel on how to live, living a life of faith, living all these things. Well, now the author turns to the question of why you should live this way. And look at verse 18. For you, notice that, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest at the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, this passage is alluding to Exodus 20, the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And if you'll remember, God reaches into Egypt and pulls out the nation of Israel from Pharaoh's hands. And he says, these are to be my people. Let them go into the desert so they may worship. And so through this variety of miraculous things that are done, they are pulled out, they come to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And God descends upon them to give them the rule of how they are to live their life as his people. And we see that as he comes down, that there's this unbelievable pyrotechnical display that indeed limits are put all the way around the mountain that to even touch the very mountain upon which God uh, uh, descends will cause death. It's so interesting here to see the response of the people. Here they've been liberated from Egypt. They come to the God who calls them their own. And yet their response is not joy. Rather, their response is sheer terror. In Exodus 20, 19, they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, because we will surely die. And Moses said, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning. See, why is it they're so terrified of God, the one who has liberated them? It's because they have an innate sense of God's holiness and their sinfulness. And they are afraid of just being immolated right there as they come into the presence of a holy God. They can't even listen to His voice. 
And as they hear these commandments that are uttered, they tremble with fear. Because they're understanding that this, this covenant, this covenant that God is making with them, is conditional. I have brought you out of Egypt. Now live according to the way that I have told you to live. For if you do so, I will bless you. But if you do not, I will curse you. And so they live in this environment of fear that they will not be able to keep the commands. The problem with these commands is that they did not penetrate to the heart. See, even after seeing this unbelievable display, even after feeling the grace of God as terrifying as it was, the people wandered away. The book of Judges is a classic example of people knowing what they're supposed to do and choosing to go the other way as well. But we see here that the author is saying, you have not come to that mountain, church. You've come to another mountain, to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. Right away we see huge differences between these two mountains. The first is from earth, on earth, but the second is heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. The first brings smoke and terror and darkness, but the second has joy and light and celebration. The, the word here used, this festal gathering, is the word penengyrus in Greek. Remember the, the writer of Hebrews, he has a big, he's a big fan of athletic imagery. And he's actually using an imagery from the Olympic Games. Yes, made perfect. These are those who have gone already, who have died in Christ, and whose spirits are in heaven, their bodies resting in the grave, waiting for the resurrection. And of course, to Jesus, the mediator. Notice there's no fear here. There's no trepidation. There's only celebration. There's no, how far can I get away from this mountain? Rather, it's, how close can I get? into joining and rejoicing in the celebration. Why is that? It's because of this blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember the blood of Abel? Cain goes out, he slays his brother Abel right after the curse of sin is put on people. And Abel's blood, it says in Genesis 4, cries out to heaven from the ground. Cries out for the injustice. Cries out for avengement for his death. But in a strange way, we see a second murder that is taking place here. Jesus, the fellow man who has been killed by the earth, by the people of the earth who have been hung on a cross. And yet, what does his blood cry out for? For avengement? <clears throat> no, for reconciliation. And for joy. A better word that is spoken. You know, the beauty of this passage is it says that you have come. In the Greek, this is what's, in what's called the perfect tense. We don't have it in English. But the perfect tense means something that has occurred already that has consequences forever. See, he's speaking a picture to us who positionally have already done this and who at, one, at some time in the future will experientially have this. Now, why is the writer having to Spell out all of these things. Because the people are living on the wrong mountain. Some of you may have heard the story of Joseph Fritzl's cellar children. 
It had it achieved international news when it was discovered that Stefan, Felix, and their 19-year-old sister Kirsten were among seven children that Joseph Fritzl had fathered with his daughter, Elizabeth, during the 24 years he kept her imprisoned in the cellar beneath his home in Austria. Only recently they were set free. And the children found the outside world so alien that they were terrified of rustling leaves, of traffic, and even of the blue color of the sky. See, they all grew up in a series of windowless rooms, and they saw daylight only for the first time uh, when they were released. And it was, it was too shocking for them. They panicked when they faced the, the hospital lifts. They were confused by mobile phone ringtones. Light levels had to be low. In fact, at the end of the day, they actually built a windowless uh, uh, room so they could rush into there when they were overwhelmed by everything around them. See, I think the picture there is such a good one because those kids, they lived in an environment of fear. That even though what was good for them, the blue sky itself, was seen to them as being evil. <clears throat> See, the reason I bring that illustration is because this church, this church keeps going to the wrong mountain, to the wrong place. And as a result, the, the result of it is fear and paralysis and wavering. See, the truth of the matter, my friends, is that fear and shame can never change people. Only unconditional love can change people. See, fear is the motivation of your life, of your service to Christianity, uh, to Jesus. Everything will be about punishment and, and, and uh, condemnation. There will be no joy in your life. Your Christianity is really cellar living, imprisoned under an angry God that is upstairs. But if you come to the right mountain, the right mountain, Mount Zion, you discover that God has not come to imprison us, rather He has come to set us free. See, it's God who has come into the cellar to liberate us. Was that not Jesus Christ who came into the tomb underneath the ground for three days that we might be liberated and set free? And so this is the picture that the writer of Hebrews is giving so we must listen to his blood. We must accept our position as being enrolled, our names in the book of life, the firstborn. We must live in the Penangiris, if only by faith. Because if we do, if joy is at the center of our hearts, if our motivation is the love of Christ, not the fear of God, worship will be the natural response of a heart that is set free by God. We, the natural response of worship is grace. So we have a response of worship, but we also have a responsibility to worship. This is my second point. You know, love always demands a response, doesn't it? Notice verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Remember, God took the Israelites and he brought them out of Egypt and he claimed them as his own. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And he gave them the Ten Commandments, how to live. And he gave it in such a dramatic fashion. 
You know, why did God do it this way? And I think one of the truths is when you're God, you, you kind of do things a little bit different, right? But God wanted to send a message to them for them to understand. Exodus 19 says that Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. See, God is warning them. You know, there are two different kinds of warnings. The first warning goes something like this. It's when I shout upstairs to my kids. Don't make me come up there. That's one warning, right? That's the you better not warning. But there's a second warning. A warning that is intended to save, right? Imagine if you had a friend who was driving around a corner and the bridge was out. You would warn them, wouldn't you? Stop where you're going. The bridge is out. And if you really wanted to communicate to them, for them to get the picture, you know what you do? You grab them and you shake them. Right? You ever done that? Listen to me. Hear my words. And you see, that's exactly what we're seeing here with this warning on Mount Sinai. See, the truth of the matter is God is not content with the planet and the way that it is. He's not content to let his creation be ruined. His goal is to restore it, to renovate it, to regenerate it. But before he does that, God is providing a way out. And so he has come down, and he has shaken the earth. He's taken a particular group of people, and he said, listen to me. Follow my commands so you might live. Respond by worshiping. <coughs> the scripture here says, how much less... Will we be in trouble if we reject him? How much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? See, that first time he shook the earth and he said, listen to me. But there will be one more shaking. And it won't be a shaking of warning. It'll be a shaking where God accomplishes his work. Second Peter says it like this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That day will bring about the destruction of the heaven the heavens by fire and the elements will melt into heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. See, there's one more shaking to be done, the final work of renovation. But then it won't be a time for warning. It will be a time for renewal. And so God's command is, don't refuse my offer of love, my offer of rescue. See, at the heart of it, my friends, the gospel is a story of love. And the gospel is a story of rescue. It's the story that all other stories are modeled after. Any of the great movies. That's why they go to get Princess Leia when she's imprisoned in the Death Star. That's why Indiana Jones goes to the island to rescue his girl, even though she's trapped under Nazi occupation. It's always the guy that goes into the burning building to save the gal because she cannot be free on her own. That is the picture of rescue that is the gospel. The question is, how will we respond to his offer of rescue? I remember after dating Lee Ellen for three years, it was time to pose the question. See, I'd become convinced that Lee Ellen was the gal for me and I was the man for her. I wanted to take care of her. I wanted her to have my name. I wanted to bring her into my home. And I wanted to build a family with her. And so I needed to go get a ring, right? 
Now, why do we do this whole wedding ring thing anyways? We want to give them a picture of the value that we put on them, of the love that we have for them. And so I determined to ask her to marry me on the steps of the rotunda of the University of Virginia. In fact, that's where all people go. Even tech graduates, I think, go to the place of the rotunda. Oh, there's constant gnashing of teeth. I just lost the audience there. All right, so they go. But needless to say, I wanted to. And so there I am, you know, I've got a table set, I've got the ring, I've got her, we're having a dinner there on the steps of the rotunda, and I go ahead and I tell her my feelings for her, and I ask her to marry me. And I wait for that interminable moment for the answer, yes or no. And what was the answer? No. <laughs> you don't believe that? Of course it was yes. I'm just playing with you. The answer was yes. Come on, people. Of course you'd say yes. Concerned if you should say no. The point is this, that she heard my offer of love, and she accepted it. She said, I want to be your wife. I want to be uh, part of your family. See, that's the offer that God brings us in the gospel. God has come to us, and he's brought us a diamond ring. Jesus Christ, of inestimable value the mediator of the covenant that binds us together. This offer is more than love. The ring is more than love. It's rescue. See, once more, only once more, he will shake the earth. But the truth of the matter is every day we feel the tremors, don't we, of the shaking that is to come. There's a death in the family. I have illness in my body. I've broken relationships in my life. These little shakes that we have that the world is not right. But even amidst the pain, they're reminders from God. I haven't forgotten about you. Hold tight to me. It'll all be renewed soon. When you have worship, hardship, excuse me, how do you respond to God? When there are difficulties in your life, when you experience maybe a little bit of shaking, do you fall away from him? He doesn't care about me. He's abandoned me. Or, may I suggest the very opposite thing is true. That these are the birth pangs of a new creation that is coming. And so we must learn amidst our difficulties not to fall away, but to lean closer into Jesus when things get hard. Because what the Lord is ultimately doing is shaking loose those things that we hold on to in our hand so tightly so that ultimately we can hold on to those things that cannot be shaken. When you're tempted to doubt, remember his offer of marriage. When you're tempted to doubt, remember his kingdom that is to come. And when you're tempted to fall away, worship the living God. That is our responsibility. So this brings me to my third point. We've talked about the reason of worship, the responsibility of worship, I want to talk about the final point, the totality of worship. How do we worship? Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We're supposed to offer to God acceptable worship. What exactly is acceptable worship? It's a tough question, you know. The concept of worship is very, very different in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This word worship 
uh, translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, into the Septuagint, in the Old Testament Greek, is proskuneo. It's used 164 times in the Old Testament. And if you'll recall, in the Old Testament, there are very, very specific guidelines about how to offer acceptable worship, aren't they? You must wear this particular vestment. He can go here, but he can't. This is an acceptable sacrifice, but this isn't. It can be offered on this day, but not on this day. Myriads and myriads of rules about how to offer acceptable worship. This word, proskuneo. But something happens when you come to the New Testament. In fact, you very, very rarely see the word proskuneo. You see it in the Gospels when people literally fall down before Jesus' feet, because the word proskuneo means to bow down. You see it in Revelation when they fall before God. But in the, in the corpus in the middle, all of the Pauline epistles, James, uh, Peter, 1 John, the sections that tell us how to live this Christian life, there's not the word proskuneo anywhere, except once, and really unrelated to what we're talking about. Why, where did it go? Why isn't there more information about how to offer acceptable worship? The truth of the matter is we have little instruction about how to conduct a worship service in terms of <coughs> specifics. Very, very little detail about the how and where and those type of things. If you remember Jesus' meeting with the Samaritan woman, and he comes to her, and uh, they're having this argument about worship, not an argument, a discussion, and the Samaritan woman says, you say the place that we must worship is on this mountain over here, mount, uh, where the temple is. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, a time is coming and has come when you will no longer worship on this mountain. For true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. See, you can't really worship unless you worship by the Holy Spirit. And you can't really worship unless you worship by the truth of God. See, the reality is we read so little about worship in the New Testament because worship has stopped being an external, localized thing and has moved into the heart. Worship is not something we do, it's something that we live. Worship is not simply the product of one's lips, it's the product of one's life. See, what God has done, acceptable worship, is transforming how we live. How are we, where are we supposed to worship? The answer is everywhere. Not just in this building, but when you go to work, when you go home, when you see your friends. When are we supposed to worship? Not just on Sunday morning, not just on the Sabbath, but every single day of the week. How are we supposed to worship? With everything that we do. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. See, worship is to be done when we're singing praises to God and when we're working on our computer program and our job. It's supposed to be everywhere. You know, one of my favorite guys, of, you know, kind of these saints of old, was a guy named Brother Lawrence. Anyone ever heard of Brother Lawrence? This guy was great. Okay, 1600s, his, he was born, his name was Nicholas Herman. He was a soldier, okay, and he, and he, and he came to faith in Christ. And he, and he said, I want to serve Christ, and so he joined a monastic order. Now, he was not an educated guy, so he couldn't become a cleric. He was a lay brother in this monasterial order. And so he was assigned to the kitchen. His job was to cook the food for everyone. 
And what we see is under this time, this area of this kitchen, Brother Lawrence made the kitchen his chapel, the place where he would worship. He was the father of pots and pans. Lawrence writes, men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and set up devices to remind them of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. Yet it might be so simple. Is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of Him? See, for Brother Lawrence, common business meant whatever it was, regardless of how uh, tedious it was, whether it was sacred or worldly, quote-unquote, it mattered nothing compared to the motivation that was behind it. Lawrence says, nor is it needful that we should have great things to do. We can do little things for God. I can turn the cake that is frying on the pan for the love of him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself and worship before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up a straw from the ground for the love of God. See, the time of business and the time of prayer didn't matter for Brother Lawrence. And so he was this humble little dishwashing friar that all of the clerics of the Abbey would come and see and spend time with because his life was such an example. See, God is calling us not to live super religious lives, but he is calling us to live lives of worship. All of life is worship with reverence and awe. See, you may not be gifted. You can't sing. You may not be good at memorizing scripture. You may not be able to sit long for times of prayer, you kind of get fidgety. But all of life is worship if done with the right heart. You may be a mom and you have little kids and they're always tugging on you and you've got to clean and you've got to take them to the doctor and you've got to do homework and you have a myriad of, of little things and frankly, a lot of your life is isolated. What God is saying, you can worship me with all of those things. Because what I care about is your heart. Whether you're a businessman, or a student, or a doctor, or whatever it is, anything can become worship. How do I know that? Because Jesus Christ himself made a worship out of being crucified on a cross. If he can do that, we can do that as well. So how do we make sure that our worship is acceptable? That it's in accordance with his word. See, his word doesn't give us a lot of practicals maybe about the worship service, but it gives us a lot of practicals about how to love one another, how to treat our brothers and sisters, how to love our kids, how to take care of our resources. See, that's why we spend so much time at Church of the Redeemer trying to get you into the word, the, book, the study on the book of James, the women's Bible study, the men's Bible study, because we want you to be equipped with the word so you know how to worship. I don't know about you, but this is so exciting for me because it transforms literally all of life. I don't know where you're at right now with your job, with your difficult relationships, but each one of them becomes an opportunity for you to give to God acceptable worship. And He accepts it. Why? Because of the love of Christ and the heart that He's given them. Well, that's pretty much all that I have for you today. Let me go ahead and pray.
Lord, we do thank you for uh, this beautiful passage that tells us that we have not come to Mount Sinai, we've come to Mount Zion. An innumerable gathering, a festal gathering, Lord, and we're included. We are part of the celebration for the mediator, Jesus Christ, has brought us joyfully into his presence. And God, you, the great judge, pronounces not as guilty, but rather as sons and daughters. Lord, help us to worship with reverence and awe, acceptably, out of the overflow of our hearts in all that we do, in the mundane and in the majestic, Lord. We pray that our lives would be pleasing to you, and that we would celebrate for what you've done in us. We pray all of this in Christ's name.